Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Strewn Along the Path here on the Journey Into podcast. Uh, have another Netflix queue episode or movie queue. Just movies that I've seen and wanted to talk to you about. Trying to start September off right. I know it's been kind of a slow summer. I haven't been able to put out too many episodes, but I'm looking to rectify that. I'm looking to, to get more out there. Uh, so this is the the start. <laughs> uh, so these movies, there's really no connective tissue to them. They're all kind of different movies that I've seen in the last few months. And it's kind of getting back to the original spirit of this series on, on this journey along the path of just a random assortment of movies that I've seen and what I thought rather than having a theme or a common thread. It, when it happens, it's fine. And sometimes I put it together that way on purpose. But uh, yeah, this one I just kind of wanted to hit you with uh, things I've seen. Oh, and one, one thing to remember as I go through these is that there will probably be spoilers for these movies. So if these are movies that you don't want spoiled, be warned. <laughs> I may give it all away. So let's see what we've got here today. So the first movie I'm going to talk about is The Death Cure, the last of the Maze Runner series. You know, I, a while back I did a whole Netflix queue episode about, about young adult fantasy movies. So not all fantasy, I guess some of them are science fiction or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> but, you know, and I talked about The Hunger Games and I talked about The Maze Runner and I talked about the Divergent series and even, I think I even talked about Rish Outfield's favorite movie, The Fifth Wave. And at that point, I can't remember if I was... I must have been talking about the first movie, The Maze Runner. And I think I briefly mentioned something about The Scorch Trials. I watched those two movies a long time ago. I kind of liked Maze Runner. I thought it was one of the better ones. You know, of course, Hunger Games and that series is the one that started it all. It's kind of the gold standard, I guess, of that genre, or at least the modern version of that genre. And the rest of them kind of, you know, fall in line behind it. But I kind of liked The Maze Runner. It had an interesting premise. And of course, it was the same kind of thing where you have a group of young, young adult people forced into this situation in a dystopian society. However, up until the end of the movie slash book, which I, di I didn't read the books. I've only seen the movies. My son has read all of the, the books. Probably any book you can think of. He's, he's read it. And so he's a good sounding board sometimes of, so what'd you think of this book? What'd you think of this movie? This, how does it compare? That kind of stuff. He, he kind of knows all that. So this is a movie I actually picked up at the library. Kind of in, in the habit now of ducking in and out of the library to find movies that I either might want to review here or just see 
uh, for myself. And so I saw this one on there I'm like, huh, you know, we never did see that movie. I'm sure my son would enjoy seeing it. So I, I picked it up. Now I didn't go back and watch the other two movies. I didn't talk to my son and get a heads up on where we were at. My whole family kind of just walked into this movie cold. You know, I, I remember that the kids were in a maze at the, in the first movie. And I remember that they were trying to find the best and brightest or something like that. Cause at the end of the movie, they break free of the maze or at least several of them do. Not everybody makes it out alive. And then they find this whole laboratory area that's been devastated and they're out in the middle of the desert or something like that. And it kind of opens it up into this bigger world outside of the maze. And then I remembered a little bit from the second movie and I hardly remembered anything about the second movie other than they were out in the world, you know, kind of a, like I said, a dyscopian landscape where most people aren't around. They're just kind of on the, I think there were some cities and stuff there and some outlying communities, but it was pretty much just, you know, vast desolation everywhere. And then there were these infected people that were pretty much zombies. And I remember that kind of angered my son because he's like, well, they're not zombies. <laughs> the movie really went in. I really made him into zombies. Well, maybe similar to how I Am Legend. You know, they really kind of leaned into that zombie trope. Well, technically, I Am Legend, they were zombies. Anyway, <laughs> I'm getting off track here. Um, and that's about all I remembered was that there were zombies and that there was kind of a ravaged world kind of thing, but the government was still out there. The government was still trying to find them or at least these evil people in the government. At least that's the way they were portrayed. And just before we started the movie, my son said something about, cause you know, my wife and the other kids are like, what's this even about? I don't remember anything. And my son only said, that uh, they were betrayed by one of their own. One of the, he said one of the girls betrayed the, the team and the government came and, and took some of them away. And I'm like, oh yeah, I kind of remember that. They were on this, in this desert and there were some rocks and they swooped down and, and took some of the people. But that's all I really remembered. And so, yep, we just started watching. It's like, oh, I guess we'll figure it out. We'll figure out what, what this thing is all about. As we watch it. And it starts out pretty good. The, the death cure. It's pretty much this train is going by. And they pull up in their armored up pickup trucks and a dune buggy kind of thing. And they're going to take over the train. Basically, you know, it's it's a train robbery. Just like we were in the Old West. Only this is a post-apocalyptic area. And so they're fighting against the, the people. You know, they're kind of a shootout thing. Two of the guys jump out of their vehicle onto the train. Uh, the other ones are providing cover and drawing fire away from them. And then ev eventually the truck has to leave because they're outgunned or, oh, a big, big, uh, like helicarrier <laughs> kind of, you know, a big vertical takeoff aircraft shows up and starts shooting at them. So they have to take off away from the train and, and they're leading the airplane away from the train. Meanwhile, they decouple the train, and basically there's there's prisoners on this train. You know, these people, basically, there's people who are immune to the disease that has infected all these people and made them zombies. Because that's basically what the government is afraid of. That's why the government did these maze things, 
is because there were people that were immune to the disease and they knew that eventually this disease would take over the whole world and everybody would be destroyed. And so the government was trying to use these people who were immune to try to find a cure. You know, as the movie progresses, I remember all these things. Um, they're particularly trying to rescue one of their friends, Mino, that was captured in the last movie. And so they're banging on the door, Mino, Mino, Mino. And of course, everybody starts screaming, hey, let me out of here, let me out of here. And so they decoupled from the train and the train realized what had happened and they had stopped. And then there's troops coming toward them, you know, but they have to run back or whatever. And they're quite a ways forward. And so they're kind of at a race for time. They're trying to arc weld through all the bolts to get it, get the people out of there. But there's, there's more than one trailer. Meanwhile, the truck has lured away the aircraft and they eventually have to stop the truck and the people come out to arrest them and take them. Well, it's a trap. They're able to capture everybody and, and take them down. And then they take over the aircraft and they go back. And it was pretty much a watching Solo, a Star Wars story again, where they bring the aircraft above the trailer, latch on, and they're just going to take off with the all the prisoners. And so they do that and they make this daring escape. And it's a heroic moment for the team. And, you know, kind of almost had a Return of the Jedi feel where we start the movie off rescuing Han from Jabba the Hutt. And this one, they're rescuing their prisoners and trying to get their friend out. And so it's, it's kind of a way to start the movie with a, with a victory, with a win and some, some action to kind of introduce you back to everybody. Um, the unfortunate thing is they didn't get their friend Mino. Mino goes back to this, one of the last cities that has a wall around it similar to the maze, you know, being a wall, you know, so all the non-infected people are in this city. Uh, but of course, around the city, there's infected and un uninfected people as, as well. So this is where everything's going to happen because this is the last defense of everybody. And this is where they took Mino. They have that they're trying to repair this big ship and take it to an island and, you know, have a refuge for all of these uh, people who are immune to the disease but are on the run from the government. It's kind of their their way to escape. But of course, Thomas, who's kind of the leader of the whole thing, and he's kind of been the star of, of the movies, he wants to go back and get Mino. And of course, his friend Newt comes along, um, who's been there the whole time in the maze and, and all the way through it. And then Brenda, who I don't really remember from the the other two movies and then an older guy that has kind of become a father figure and he's taken her on as, as you know, he's like her dad. I, they might be related. I can't remember. So there was there only four of them. seems like there. Oh, there was another guy. Um, his name was Fry or something like that. Fry. I think that's what they called him anyway. So, so he was with them and they, you know, go on this trek to, to the city to, to save their friend. And, of course, they, they meet up with zombies and other obstacles as they're going. Uh, but when they get outside the city, you know, there's kind of a city around the walls or, you know, communities around the walls. Um, he's tagged. Thomas is tagged. And so a, a drone picks up his signature. And so they know he's coming. And they expect that he's coming because they have Mino. And then Teresa, that's who, who it is, was kind of Thomas's girlfriend. And she's the one that betrayed them. And she's still there in the city working on the cure for the government. You know, she's kind of 
a believer that they can find a cure, they can save everybody. And so they're doing these terrible experiments on Mino to, to extract, I don't know, his sweat or his tears or something that's kind of like an, an antidote, trying to get an antidote for the disease. And she's working on that. And so and then surprisingly, you know, there's kind of a resistance movement outside of the city that, that, you know, wants to stick it to the government and get inside the city and tear it down because, of course, they're being oppressed and all these things. And so there's a resistance group. They grab uh, Thomas and his friends and kind of take them away to their headquarters. <laughs> Similar, I guess, to, uh, to Rogue One. I'm comparing everything to Star Wars today. And so they end up meeting, they find that one of the leaders of the resistance is uh, the guy, one of the guys from the maze that they thought was dead. He'd been stabbed or impaled or something. And so they thought he was dead. His name is Galley. And it's always funny when this actor shows up because he was the same actor that played Eustace in the Narnia movie. Which one was it? The Dawn Treader, Journey of the Dawn Treader. He was their obnoxious cousin that they went to visit that went with them back to Narnia. And eventually, you know, he had a redemption story kind of thing. And anyway, he was kind of this obnoxious character in that movie. And so now he's older and taller and grown up, you know, and, but you can definitely tell he's got these heavy eyebrows and just very striking features. And so they're like, Hey, it's, it's Eustace. Eustace is there, but he was in the first movie. So they remembered that. But anyway, so he's now he's on their side. He's helping them. He's going to get them into the city. And, you know, Thomas is going to come up with a plan. And it's a lot of a longer movie than I expected it to be. But, you know, honestly, I was pretty uh, wrapped up in the movie the whole time. I was involved in it. I cared about what was happening. It didn't seem to go on too long. They had some really good action sequences and some uh, suspense uh, thriller kind of moments in there. They did a good job with the characters and with the, you know, part of it also was a heist movie where they were trying to, you know, sneak in and get their friend and and save as many prisoners as they could and found out that one of their friends was infected. And so he was trying to fight that off, but it was, you know, building up to this, you know, you knew something bad was going to happen or they they had to find some way to help their friend as well. Um, So I, I really liked this movie. Uh, a lot more than I thought I was going to. I thought, oh, okay, it's going to be another Scorch Trial movie where I just kind of forget, you know, a couple months later. I don't even remember what happened in the movie. Uh, but it was better than that. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, it's not up there with Endgame or anything like that. But, uh, yeah, it was it was kind of a good movie. And I thought transcended above a lot of the other, you know, Divergent or... What was that other one I talked about? Rish's favorite movie, The Fifth Wave. So I would recommend, you probably want to watch at least the first movie, The Maze Runner, just to kind of get a feel for who these characters are. But yeah, The Death Cure was was pretty good. You know, I noticed listening back on some of these Netflix Q episodes that I seem to draw out the ending. You know, like after I've kind of recapped everything I want to recap and then I give you know, did I like the movie or didn't I like it? You know, I don't really give it a rating, but I, you know, you can kind of tell if I really liked it or if oh, it was pretty good or eh, whatever. But I kind of string that out and I repeat myself like four times. Yeah, it was a good movie. 
and then a couple of them, and I say something else, and I'll say, yeah, so it's a good movie. I recommend it. I think I just did that again. <laughs> so there you go. There's The Death Cure. So the next movie I'm going to talk about is Lego Movie 2, the second part. And this is different than any other of the movies that I've done here on the podcast because typically these are movies that I watched in my home. <laughs> but this is actually a movie I went to go see at a dollar theater. And on Tuesday nights, all movies are actually just a dollar. My family and I, and sometimes just me, will go on Tuesday night to, to watch a movie for a dollar. You know, one that's in the theaters, I kind of want to see it. But at the same time, I don't want to pay a lot of money for it. So I'll either wait for it to come out. Or now I have the option of going to this dollar theater. So... I'm going to count it here for the, quote, Netflix Q movie because it's probably going to be out on DVD or it is already out on DVD and I could get it from Netflix or, or a streaming service or something like that. So I'm going to count any, any movies that I go to see at the Dollar Theater, one of these uh, movies that I can talk about on here. Not that there's really any hard rules here. Shoot, it's my podcast. Nobody listens anyway. So <laughs> I can kind of do what I want. Uh, but anyway, so let's talk more about the movie. So I guess going back a little bit, there was a big buzz when the Lego movie came out. You know, I wasn't planning on going to see the Lego movie. I didn't really care that much about it. But so many people talked about how good it was and how original and stuff that I thought, wow, this sounds like a movie I might like. So I think I did wait for it to come out on DVD or whatever. But I watched the Lego movie and I really enjoyed it. It was different. It was innovative. And, and uh, yeah, it wasn't... I mean, some people just loved it and thought it was the greatest thing. And But I enjoyed it quite a bit. You know, there's there's a lot of... You have to pay attention a lot to catch some of the humor and some of the contents. And, of course, if you don't have the context for the joke, it doesn't make as much sense or it's not as funny. But it was Lord and Miller, right? And I never remember their first names because everybody just talks about them as Lord and Miller. Um, but I think this was one of their big big first ones. I think they had done 21 Jump Street. Is that right? Which I haven't seen those. But they did those. And then Lego Movie was a big success for them. And then I think they also did the Batman Lego Movie, which I've watched that as well. Same kind of thing. I, I really liked the Lego Batman Movie too. Again, I, I don't put it in one of those things where, wow, that was the best movie I've ever seen. But it's an enjoyable movie to watch. Uh, because there's so many little fun, geeky moments and contextual jokes that are just thrown in there that you, you might miss. You know, I'm sure if I watched the Lego movie a second time or the Batman Lego movie a second time, I'd catch even more stuff that I missed the first time. But I enjoyed both the Lego movie and the Batman Lego movie for just for that reason, for that same that, that type of humor. And so I thought, well... Even though the Lego Movie 2 didn't have as good of reviews and people didn't like it as much and it didn't really do very well, maybe I'll, I'll still like it. And so it's playing at the Dollar Theater. I'm going to go see Lego Movie 2. Well, the other part of that story is my daughter wanted to go see How to Train Your Dragon 3 movie again. She loves that movie and loves How to Train Your Dragon like I talked about when I talked about it on the podcast. And I really liked How to Train Your Dragon 3 as well. But I'd already seen it, and I didn't really want to go see it again. I wanted to see something else. And so Lego Movie 2 was really the only movie 
that uh, I would have wanted to see playing at the time. So anyway, my son and I, so my wife and two other kids go to How to Train Your Dragon 3. My son and I go to see Lego Movie 2. And, you know, we have to kind of wait a while. We got there early because the other movie started earlier. So we just kind of had to wait around for a while. So we did, you know, we talked and whatever. And then the movie started and there was a couple little previews. And then there was the movie. And as I'm watching the beginning of this movie, I'm just thinking, oh no, this is going to be terrible. I'm not going to like this movie. I'm going to sit here for two hours and feel like even though it was only a dollar, I lost, I wasted my money. I just, it didn't have anything that I was really interested in. It was really different, which is okay. You don't want the movie to be the same thing. And they had some cool images and some cool stuff, but most of it was just like, what is going on? (laughs) And so I was like, oh no, this is going to be really bad. No wonder people didn't like this movie. And it definitely wasn't as good of a movie as the first one. But as they got into it and as they kind of moved on from where they started... And then the main plot started going. I, I got into it more. I cared again I cared again about some of the characters and what was going on. And you know, the Lego movie is really a strange and the you know, the pick the Toy Story series, you know, you get it from the you know, when the people are away, the toys wake up and do stuff and it's it's kind of fun that way. Similar to that, like the Lego movie, like it's all dependent upon the people that are interacting with the Legos and it's talking about being a Lego builder. Uh, this movie brings out, you know, the, the Lego breaker that you need to break things. But the first movie that only came in in small moments, you know, where it was the kid interacting with the dad or the dad character. And then at the, at the end, you really got to see, Oh, this is what's really going on in the real world that's being represented here by the Lego movie. And it, you know, it just becomes kind of this existential thing with the Legos having their own lives and whatever, but it's really all just representing how they're being used by the humans. And so it's a little weird, a little awkward, not as cut and dry as the, the toy story movies, but they didn't expose you to a lot of that in the, uh, the first Lego movie. Well, the second Lego movie you know that from the start and you, you kind of see how things are progressing and you see more of what's going on with the boy who's playing with his Lego Legos. Is it Lego Legos? You always say Legos. Anyway, I don't know how that works. And so basically, you know, at the end of the movie, it shows how his little sister with her Duplos come in at the very end of the first Lego movie. And it starts out with this war between the Lego characters that we got to know against these Duplo characters. And then everything blows up and it's like a post-apocalyptic thing. And Emmett is made to look like, you know, he's just this happy-go-lucky guy and everybody else in the world is hardened because it's a post-apocalyptic thing now and you need to grow up and face the music and that kind of thing. Oh, and then this, so the, and then this other spacecraft because they were basically like they were attacked from outer space. But in reality, you know, it's all about 
sister. And so this spaceship or whatever comes and takes several people. You know, you got the space guy and the pirate guy. You've got the main woman, Wildside. I think that's her name. She ends up going. Lego Cat character goes. Anyway, several of these characters are taken into the spaceship. And they go through the the portal, which is basically the door to the basement. Through space to this other world. And so then Emmett, he's, he's determined to make his way to get there. And then you can tell he's just about to fail. And then this other spaceship comes in and saves him. And it's this Kurt Russell looking Lego, you know, with stubble or whatever. And spoilers, if you care, I pretty much knew right away that it was a, a time travel thing. This was Emmett from the future who was the hardened guy. And he was helping his previous self get to where they were going, which was basically the sister's bedroom. <laughs> just, you know, it's all kind of weird and stuff. And uh, meanwhile, there's this ubiquitous shaped Lego character who wants... Oh, and Batman. Yeah, of course. Lego Batman also is taken to this other world. And basically, she wants to marry... Batman and have this big celebration and so that's what it's all about and then you know the characters are resisting and stuff at first but then they take them into these rooms and they start playing this catchy music song you know like a just a you know vapid pop song but it was kind of funny you know it was kind of like you know the song in in the first Lego movie was everything is awesome and in this one it was how does it it was Pretty much the repeated words, but it was all very poppy, saying, you won't be able to get this song out of your head. And uh, I don't know, maybe I should play a little bit of it. It is, you know, it, it's that part was pretty cool just to, to hear that. And she's, of course, wild sides trying to resist, but eventually all of her friends are succumbing to it. And uh, Batman is wearing like a Liberace cape and he's all in white. And she tricks him into wanting to get married. And that the, all the Batman stuff is pretty funny. You know, they, I just really like the way that they do the, the Lego Batman character. You know, he's just very stoic and, you know, he's always talking like this. And, and uh, the way she convinces him to marry her, she says, well, she sings this song, of course. And there are several moments throughout the movie where it's like, oh, I... I I feel a song coming on, you know, kind of like from Pixar, but, uh, was that Wheezy on the Pixar movies? I feel a song coming on, but it was, they, somebody would say something like, Oh, what's the music for? Oh, there's going to be a musical number. They kind of overdid that a little bit. <clears throat> but anyway, she sings a song about you're right. You're not my type of guy. And then she starts describing who she, the kind of person that she likes. And it's Superman. And he's like, what? No, you can't marry Superman. I'm better than Superman. You should marry me. You know, kind of thing. And all that was pretty funny. Uh, and so, you know, at this point, I, I was getting more into the movie. And then eventually, Wildside, you know, escapes and meets up with Emmett and I can't remember the other guy, Rex, Danger Rex or something like that, who's actually his future self. Spoilers! Sorry, I should have warned you at the beginning. So they're, you know, they're combining their forces and have a plan on how to stop the wedding and all of her brainwashed friends and to save them 
And the big twist is that actually, oh, that's right. At the beginning of the movie, Emmett has this vision. I think he had this uh, a vision in the first one too, right? That kind of said what was going to happen. But it, it showed how they, something happened. They didn't show the marriage or anything. But anyway, something happened and it was Mama Geddon. And so that's what they're trying to stop is Mama Geddon. Well, it turns out that actually the sister was just trying to, to make everybody get along. And the person that you think is the bad person that's trying to create Mama Geddon by having the wedding is actually trying to stop it and trying to be peaceful. And Rex is the bad guy who's trying to stop everything and doesn't want it to happen. And basically Emmett got stuck under the, the Lego figure of Emmett got stuck underneath the washer for years and years and was all alone. And he had to watch all of his friends do stuff. And so he found a way to get back in time. You know, it says, Oh, I took a little bit from the DeLorean. I took a little bit from the TARDIS and I took a little bit from what was the other? Oh, Bill and Ted's thing. So he's going to all these Lego figures and he builds his own time travel spaceship and goes back in time to, to stop everything from happening so he doesn't get stuck alone underneath the washer. So anyway, I, you know, I'm not going to sum it all up, but basically the brother and sister are fighting over the Legos. The mom comes in. Now this is in the real world. I said there's a lot more real world interaction. And so the mom comes in and says, all right, I've had it. I told you guys, if you can't get along, when you're playing with your Legos, they're all going to go away. You're all going to have to put them all away in a bin and put them away. So, again, the Toy Story parallels are there, right? Oh, you're broken. I don't want you anymore, Woody. But ultimately, they get, you know, the brother and the sister come together. And uh, they're starting to play together. <clears throat> Everything's saved. But, again, in the middle there, or at the end... There's a lot of this really existential thing where the Legos actually do start coming to life. And it's kind of comical when the actual Lego Rick and the actual Lego, or the actual Lego Rex and the actual Lego of Emmett are actually fighting underneath the dryer. <laughs> you just see these two Legos kind of bumping into each other. It's kind of weird. And... I don't know if it landed very well for me. I'm like, okay, you're kind of pushing the limit here. Of, I can really, I can get behind the, okay, there's really humans that are doing stuff with the Legos, and this is the Legos representation of it. You know, from their view, this is what they see happen in their world. But it's kind of this weird. I keep using the word existential, but that's the only word I can think of. It's this kind of a weird existential thing with the Legos. And they really push it, I think, beyond the limit of where I, I, mean, I, I chuckled at it. So I guess it was entertaining in that way. But I don't know, it was just a little too weird for me. And uh, kind of going, pushing it a little bit too far. So, I don't know. Your mileage may vary on that if you like the movie or not. But again, the thing that I enjoyed most about it, was just all the little references that they throw in. I guess I would credit that to Lord Miller. I think they wrote the script, and so they're throwing things in there. Just, you know, little comments that if you didn't know the reference, you would just 
you know, wouldn't worry about it, but you catch on to it and you kind of chuckle. And you're like, oh, that's funny. You know, one of the, one of the running gags I thought was funny. At one point they're crawling through the, the air ducts to escape and they're going through and then they run into, to Bruce Willis <laughs> and he's, you know, in his t-shirt, you know, in his diehard outfit, you know, and uh, they're like, oh, Bruce Willis, what are you doing here? And it's a Lego Bruce Willis, right? Oh, I'm, I crawl through these things all the time, you know, <laughs> kind of doing that. And then earlier, I think before that, they had mentioned something about Bruce Willis and he's over in the corner doing something. He's like, what? You know, and you're like, oh, that's kind of funny. But then later they see him in the air duct and uh, they're crawling through there. And, I, and that was pretty funny. Again, if you hadn't seen Die Hard, you wouldn't get that reference. If you didn't know who, I mean, you know, a lot of the young people watching these movies, they probably don't even know who Bruce Willis is, let alone Die Hard. So there's rewards like that, that in there for older people like me. And so that was kind of funny. And then I caught it later on, too. There was something, it wasn't an air duct, but it was something similar where they were crawling through something. And I don't even think you saw it in the scene. Like, as it was moving on to another scene, you just hear one of the characters say, oh, it's Bruce Willis, hi, or whatever. And then you hear, hi there. I can't remember what it was, but the three times they, they called back to Bruce Willis. and But again, you'd miss it if you blinked or if you weren't listening for a, f- a few seconds. And there's a lot of that kind of stuff in there. And if I watched the movie again, I'd probably catch other things, too, in there. So that's, I don't know. I guess I enjoyed the movie. I wouldn't give it a full thumbs up. You know, I'd, I'd probably give it a, uh, maybe, maybe it's between a, f- a thumb on its side to a thumbs up. Uh, it's, it's an okay movie. I wouldn't go out of your way to see it, but it had its moments. So there you go. The next movie I'm going to talk about today is The Messengers from 2007. Now, IMDb classifies this movie as a horror mystery thriller. And typically that's a movie that I would seek after or say, hey, let's watch this one. But this one I didn't know anything about. My wife put it on our Netflix queue and it's eventually creeped up to the top. And, uh, you know, there's been a couple other movies that we've watched that my wife has put on that I didn't know anything about and. But I just never would have suspected that she would have picked this movie because she always reads the descriptions and says, oh, this might be interesting. But she likes a good thriller every now and then. Not necessarily horror, but definitely thriller. So that's probably what she was going for. I don't know. It was a long time ago that this got put on the list. And it's, like I said, percolated to the top of our queue. And, yeah, I didn't know anything about this movie going in. I didn't know who was in it. I didn't know anything. So I kind of like that. You know, it's one of those things that uh, is a nice surprise. Um, so, yeah, to me, this was a classic. Well, not not classic in the way of, uh, you know, unbeatable past film. But uh, it's a... Uh, should I say by the numbers horror movie, but it, it works. I, I thought it was a good horror movie 
Um, there are some things that kind of bother me about it, but I'll get into that as we go through. So this movie stars uh, Kristen Stewart. This is before Twilight. This is what like a year before Twilight because it's 2007. Twilight came out in 2008. One of these days I'm going to have to watch those Twilight movies, I guess, just to say that I have. But the other movie that I know Kristen Stewart from before Twilight is Zathra, which I really liked. That's one of my favorite movies. I've watched it many times. Um, but that's not, she was just an, inc- not an incidental, but uh, she was a a sub-character in that movie. She was the sis- the big sister who could be could be a problem. But in this one, it's it's mostly her, I guess. I mean, so basically it's this family. I, I think they came from Chicago or New York. And there's been issues with the family. And he lost a lot of money. Of course, it's, well, it's not 2008 yet when the big crash recession happened. But anyway, he's been down on his luck. And so he's decided to move his family out in the middle of nowhere in North Dakota and start a sunflower farm or sunflower seed farm. And so they arrive to this house and it's just, you know, a mom and a dad and then Kristen Stewart as the daughter and then a young, young boy, not a baby, but more of a toddler, uh, but he doesn't speak. I guess I can get that out of the, out right, right away. We don't know why he doesn't speak. We just know he doesn't. And... So there's this whole backstory, and it does nothing wrong to know this backstory up front. But the movie kind of drags it out. I mean, you don't learn the whole story until toward the end of the movie, or at least in the last third of the movie. You finally put all the pieces together as what's happened in this family. And I can see doing that if it was really um, an integral part of the plot of the, you know, why these things are happening in a horror movie, you know, and if that's coming out as part of the horror movie, then I can see dragging that out a little bit as a more of a reveal at the end or everything comes together and you understand why all these things are happening, but it really doesn't. This, the backstory of the family doesn't have anything to do with the horror that's going on. And so that kind of bothered me. I'm like, why are they dragging this out? I mean, you could tell, you know, they'd, they'd give you a little bit of information and then you just start to wonder, well, you know, what's going on there? And then it goes off to something else. And then later on, they give you a little bit more and it's just like they give you all these clues. And that's fine in a murder mystery or, in a, like I said, in a horror movie where the underlying trauma or angst or unfinished, unresolved emotions or whatever is what's causing the horror or is a parallel to the horror that's going on. You know, you kind of sometimes get that metaphorical uh, feeling of a, of a horror movie, but no, it doesn't. So anyway, the backstory is they were in New York. uh, They're having a hard time. Kristen Stewart's parents were away at a party or some work function, or I can't remember what it was. And they couldn't pick up their son from school or wherever he was. And so they called their daughter and asked her to go pick him up. Well, she had been drinking with her friends and thought she was fine. Went and picked up her brother. 
on the way back, they got in a car accident because she'd been drinking. And ever since then, the boy didn't talk. And now the parents really don't trust her to drive and, and all these things. But again, they don't show flashbacks. They don't even visualize what happened in the past. It's just eventually all the pieces come out and you understand, you know, why there's some stress there with the daughter or why the mom's scared that she doesn't want her to drive or they're a little bit nervous about leaving the son alone with her. And you finally get all that, but it's, like I said, it has, it gives nothing to the plot that's going on, the horror elements. So I guess I'll get my grievance out <laughs> right up front about the movie. But really, that's that's kind of a minor thing. But it just seemed like an unnecessary contrivance to me. Ooh, throwing out the big words. Is that a big word? Maybe. But and I also should mention that, you know, I, I gave you the backstory of this family. And I told you that he was down on his luck and came out to make his way as a sunflower seed farmer in North Dakota. Well, the movie starts out with the, you know, the little credits popping up before all that. It's kind of in a black and white, not quite black and white, but almost black and white, not sapia. Anyway, just kind of, kind of a washed out thing where you knew it was something that happened in the past and this something bad is happening and they're in this old house and you see these these this older girl and this younger boy running down the stairs. They're running from something. It seems supernatural. They get down the stairs, or the boy's hiding, and then the, the, his sister comes and says, I'll get you out of here. Let's go. And they're going down the stairs, and then whatever is chasing them catches up and drags the daughter back up the stairs or down the stairs and into this bedroom, and, you know, she's grabbing on to the floor, the wood floor with her fingernails and making scratch marks in the floor and being drug in to this other room, to this bedroom. And then the, it stops. Or actually maybe it was the cellar. I think it ended up being the cellar and the boy, then the boy's left all alone. He goes and hides underneath the kitchen sink. You know, the sister told him to run, but he went and hide, hid instead. And he, from his perspective, you're, looking out and hoping that this, whatever this is, doesn't come for him. But then eventually the doors open. You don't see what it is, but it grabs the little boy too. And so that's the opening scene of the movie. So right away, so we watched it with two of my kids and and my wife. So they're what, 13 and 14 right now. So right away, my daughter's putting her pillow in front of her face and she's like, oh, we're like, oh, you you know, are you going to have nightmares tonight kind of thing? (laughs) <laughs> because sometimes they, they don't want to watch that, but most of the time they're game for stuff like that. It depends on how how dark it is. But anyway, so after all that was done, then it then it becomes colorized, and then you see this family that's moving in, and they pull up to the same house that we just saw with all these bad things going on. When they pull up to the house, I mean, it's just an old, dilapidated house, and... Uh, you kind of wonder why would anybody buy something like that? And, you know, I guess if you're down on your luck and you're going to be a farmer, you are looking to maybe fix up the house later after the first harvest kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a pretty dumpy place, but they're moving in. <laughs> and 
Well, I should say the the dad in this is played by Dylan McDermott. And I don't know. For me, whenever I see him, I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be a great movie. He just, I don't know, for me, he just signifies, oh, this is mediocre. This is not that great. And, and you know, if, if you're listening to this and you think, oh, I love Dylan McDermott in this movie, let me know. You know, what what's a good movie that, that he's been in? And I remember him being in, when I was watching the first season of American Horror Story, and he was in there. And I stopped watching after a while. I wasn't too interested, and it was kind of getting kind of dark and slimy. So, not the kind of horror that I really like to watch. I'm not too impressed by Dylan McDermott. Yeah, he's probably a good-looking guy, and he's a better actor than me, most likely. But, I don't know, he, he kind of drags everything down for me for some reason. But the mother is played by Penelope Ann Miller, who I really like. I think she's a really good actress. To me, she just seems more, I don't know, from my youth, you know, one of those classic um, actresses, you know, kind of like Dee Wallace, or even though there's really nothing to associate Dee Wallace with Penelope Ann Miller up until this point. <laughs> They've both been in horror movies, but um, anyway, I just, I, I like her a lot, and she doesn't have a lot to do in this movie other than kind of be a parent that doesn't trust and doesn't listen to their child. But, uh, and, you know, become hysterical when things go crazy at the end. But, you know, that's all right. So anyway, they move in, they're, they're doing their stuff. And then right away, the little boy starts picking up on, hey, there's something here. And he starts following things that are looking up at the ceiling and following things. And, and we start to see things, you know, crawling out of the crevices and we hear the little voices kind of indistinguishable and then as the movie progresses we start to see like a strange body climbing creepily on the ceiling or up up on a wall or something like that and it's i don't remember and i haven't seen the ring which was a an american adaptation of a japanese film i think but it kind of has that same vibe and i think a lot of movies in this era had the same vibe where it's a creepy person and they're calling in an unnatural way and they're kind of gray and that kind of thing. And so they just, it just felt like that. It's like, Oh, this is what we're doing now. This is the 2000 era movie. And this is what the creepy things look like in a movie made today. And they all kind of had a similar vibe to that. These creatures are kind of the same, but right away, the little boy starts picking up on, these things and looking up at the ceiling and following them, playing around in a room, these things. And he's kind of getting joy out of it. And it's a classic horror thing, right? The little kids can see things that the parents can't or the, the, the grownups can't, you know, like the shining or anything else. That's kind of a, a staple or what's the word, a trope of the horror genres. The little kids pick up on supernatural things before anybody else does. Uh, but it works. I mean, it's it's a trope for a reason. Um, because, you know, you believe, hey, this little boy is seeing this stuff. And uh, it's kind of creepy, you know. And there's this stain on the wall. At the beginning of the movie, we saw that the, the mother was killed and she was thrown against the wall and her head splattered and left a big blood stain or brain matter on the wall or whatever. And uh, the, the mother is trying to clean that stain and she cleans it off the wallpaper. But then the next day... 
it's back again. She's like, what? What's going on? And that's the only kind of weird thing that the adults start to see. Uh, before we go too far, I guess I should talk about there's also, you know, they can't afford to hire anybody, but there's this guy that comes down that's traveling through that, you know, he's looking for work. And the guy tells him, he says, well, I, I can't give you any money. We have lodging for help and we can give you food, but we can't pay anything until after the harvest. And so that they make an agreement that he's that this guy is going to help them on the on the farm and and do what needs to be done to get uh, a good crop in. And so they have help and uh, somebody living close by. And this character is named Burwell, and he's played by John Corbett. And I know John Corbett's been in lots of things, but the only thing I remember him from is Northern Exposure. He was the radio DJ guy, kind of had a quirky personality. As a lot of people did on that show. Uh, but that's what I remember him most from. And so he's he's in here as well. But back to the haunted house, right? The uh, young boy isn't the only one that uh, starts to have, that has these experiences with these ghosts or poltergeists or formerly dead people. <laughs> uh, so soon Kristen Stewart uh, has an experience. The parents go somewhere and they leave her to babysit and everything seems to be going fine but then the ghosts show up and they're trying to lead the boy down to the cellar and that's where that girl got dragged to at the beginning of the movie so you know nothing good happens in the cellar but she finds him before he goes down in the cellar and then he starts and then she starts to feel things and she doesn't see what he sees but she starts to feel them around her she starts to feel the effects they start to do you know the poltergeist stuff where they're knocking stuff over she can feel the wind or the whatever from them and they just start tearing up the place and making a mess all over they go into the main room you know she's scared to death and you know trying to protect her little brother and then uh, she tries to put him out the window but the window's locked she can't figure it out and then uh Burwell shows up at the other side of the window and then all of a sudden the window opens and she opens the window. She, she puts her little brother, I think his name is Ben. She, she hands Ben out the window to him and then she turns around and everything stops. I also forgot to mention that she had called 911 and was saying that something is in the house and all this stuff is going on. But when she turns around after getting her brother out of the house, everything's quiet. The ghosts are gone and the, Everything's cleaned up. It looks like nothing happened at all. And so then it cuts to where the police are there. They've seen everything. The parents come home. They're all worried because the police cars are out there. What's gone wrong? And, of course, we don't know it at the time, but they would be extra concerned because of what happened with their son, you know, in the car accident and, you know, not trusting their daughter and things like that. And it would have been nice to know that ahead of time, just saying, <laughs> instead of learning it later in the movie. So... They're not very nice to her. They, you know, pretty much the police are saying, well, there's, there's nothing here. Nobody's been here. Nothing's out of place. We're not going to call this a hoax. We're just going to call it a false alarm. But, you know, pretty much they didn't believe anything she was saying. And the parents didn't either. They were pretty cold to her. Not that they shunned her or anything, but they definitely didn't believe them, believe her. And she's like, do you think I'd make this up? Later on, at least when they're, the parents are talking together, at least... Penelope Ann Miller's character, you know, says, 
did you see how scared she was? She was scared to death. So at least they believed that she was scared. Because And, you know, a lot of people have a lot of bad things to say about Kristen Stewart. And, you know, while the, in the things I've seen, she doesn't have a lot of range. But then I haven't seen everything she's done either. But I was really convinced that she was scared to death. I thought she played that scene really well. That really rattled her, and you could really tell in her character. So I thought she did a good bit of acting in this movie. You know, again, a lot of things she does is her typical, you know, quiet, mumbly, concerned, dark-looking, off-in-the-distance kind of thing that I've seen, at least in previews and things I've seen in the Twilight movies and stuff like that. So she's definitely there and has those same qualities, but... Again, I was convinced that she was scared. I was convinced and when she was trying to save her brother, she was concerned. She was she played that scene really well, I thought, and later on in the movie as well. So these things keep happening to her. She and but she kind of follows it. It's like she's attracted to it. Even though it never turns out good, she does go down in the cellar at one point and the cellar floor turns into this muddy dirt and the and the the ghost is in there and it tries to pull her down into the dirt. And there's another uh, ghost behind the stairs that she sees that runs at her and she barely gets out of the, that alive. And then there's another time where she follows it into a barn. And, but this time she actually sees a little boy crying in the corner and she's actually able to go up to it and touch him. But then he turns around and his eyes are all glossy and he's, you know, He's white, you know, it's again, similar to the the ring ghost or the grudge. Which one was first, the grudge or the ring? I don't know. But, you know, similar to that type of a, a gray, dead type figure, you know. <laughs> Not doing a very good job of describing it, but hopefully you know what I'm talking about. Hopefully you've seen dozens of movies with those types of characters in it. The other thing that's all throughout this movie is... Uh, these ravens or crows, probably both ravens and crows, they seem to be doing things. But you kind of get the impression that they're not there to harm. I mean, even though they're kind of scary to the people that are there and they're doing things wrong, you can kind of see, oh, they're trying to warn these people that this isn't a good place to be. You know, the the crows come in and eat all of the, uh, try when he first gets the sunflower seeds to plant, they get into his car and they're starting to eat all the seeds and tear open the bags and he has to get them out and they start attacking him and then that's when Burwell shows up with his shotgun and scares him away. And that's when he gets introduced. But they're doing that and they attack the windows and, you know, have some jump scare moments there with the crows. But you kind of have this feeling that they're trying to warn them and get them out of there rather than trying to do them any harm. And of course, you know, I'm seeing a, a connection to the birds, you know, to, to Alfred Hitchcock and the birds. And they do have this one scene later on. And I guess we can just jump toward the end. So essentially, nobody believes her. And all these things keep happening and, and nobody believes her. Except there's this one local boy that she meets up with. And he's trying to help her out. And she's going to run away with him or or just get away from the house and get away from her parents and everything. And so she leaves. And then there's this scene where all the birds attack Burwell out in the field, out in the sunflower field. 
And I mean, it's, it's right out and he's running and all the crows are coming and they're pecking at his head and they're landing on his neck and pecking at him. And, uh, you know, he falls down and they're all over him. But then it starts to flash back. And at the same time, or very close to the same time, the mother in the house is in the room and she's doing a few things and she turns around and there's that blood stain on the wall, but it's come down the wall. It's the full length of the wall. And this woman, this dead gray woman starts coming out through the blood stain. So this is the mother from the opening scene. And so she starts saying, Oh, you know, she starts freaking out. And I'm like, yeah, now you know what your daughter was talking about <laughs> kind of thing. And I think you're supposed to have that kind of reaction. You know, you're supposed to feel for, I should mention her by name instead of just saying Kristen Stewart. I, Oh, Jess, Jessica, but everybody calls her Jess. That's that's Kristen Stewart's name. So you see this, and then, so she starts packing up. She's like, we're getting out of here. She starts packing up her things. Well, anyway, after getting attacked by the, these birds, Burwell kind of wakes up in a daze because all the birds fly away. And I, I don't know exactly why they do. But anyway, so the, all the birds fly away, and he's kind of waking up, and he's looking at the house, and he sees the mom, Denise, is the mom character. Roy is Dylan McDermott. Anyway, so Burwell starts flashing back and it goes to the black and white somewhat sapia thing and it shows the woman you saw at the end coming out of the porch and packing her bags to leave. And he's looking at this and, and you start to figure out, oh, he was there. He's the one that killed his family. And then you start to see all these flashback scenes Instead of seeing this presence and the children running away and down the stairs and hiding in the cupboard from this presence, you see the scenes now again where it's actually him. It's Burwell. And he's, so he starts to go through this psychic thing where he's flashing back and, you know, I guess whatever rage he was in that killed his family had gone away or he forgot about it. Now it's all coming back. So now he sees this other woman and he thinks that it's his wife and he's living in the past. And so he goes and starts terrorizing the mother. Uh, in the meantime, Jess has gone back to town and she says, you know, I, oh, she, at some point she had a locket and she wasn't able to open it. But then when she opened it, she saw this, this lady, this Hispanic lady that was um, Burwell's old wife, I guess, right? The, the lady that died at the beginning. She goes, I've seen that woman before. And she goes into the feed shop and she looks at the bulletin board and there's a picture and there's a little family up there. And it's the family. Somebody had told her earlier that it's the family that used to live in their house. Well, another picture was covering it up and she lifts it up and, oh, crap, the husband is Burwell. So she figures out, oh, no, he's the bad guy. And so she go, they go back, head back. And so they end up fighting with him and go down in the cellar boy is incapacitated the mother is hiding in the cellar with her little boy but the door and then Kristen Stewart goes down there and she locks the door Jess sorry and then uh they're hiding and and he busts through the door eventually with his he has a pitchfork and he's trying to bust through the door with the pitchfork and you know does the whole I mean he doesn't say hello Johnny but he's you know it's definitely similar to the scene out of The Shining where he busts through the door comes down the stairs. He's looking for them. They're hiding. He's just about to find them. Meantime, Dylan McDermott or Roy, I guess, has come home and he's saying, oh, hey, where's everybody? You know, so he comes downstairs and then you think it's 
Burwell coming to get Jess, but it's actually their dad. And she says, Dad, where are you? Hey, look out! And then he gets hit with a pitchfork. And then uh, Kristen Stewart, or Jess, has to fight with with him. But then, here we are. The cellar floor starts to turn back into mud and dirt or whatever, and the ghosts come out. And they help her out, and they pull him down, pull Burwell down into the mud. And uh, he's and they you know, pulling him down. And so he's pulled down in the mud. Looks like everything's over, but of course it's a horror movie. It's not over. She goes to turn around and leave. And of course he reaches out and grabs her ankle. And now he's trying to pull her down into the the mud with him and kill her. But the dad kind of groggily gets up and he's trying to pull on her and get her away from him. And then the mom comes out and they're both pulling her out. And so I guess they were going for a, Oh, the family's all together now, and the parents are there to support their daughter. And, you know, too little too late, right? <laughs> but uh, anyway, so they pull her away, and he gets buried down in the mud and dead. So the, the family had their revenge and killed him. And so, and then, you know, it's pretty much the end of the story. The police come out. I don't know what they told the police about <laughs> what happened and where everybody was. Uh, but the boy survived as well. He just got knocked out. And then uh, the birds flew away. And so I guess the birds were the messengers. They were the ones that were trying to warn them that bad things were going to happen and tried to get them to leave. And So I guess the birds are the messengers. I don't know if this is based on a book or something like that. I haven't looked into that. Maybe it is. And maybe if it was a book, it would describe these birds better. And you'd get a better idea of that, that these were the messengers or whatever. Because there was little uh, drawings on the window, the dirt on the window of, of birds. So I think maybe the, the children were asking the birds for help. or what I, I don't know. Um, so even though I'm kind of laughing at it and deriding some of the things in the movie, I kind of liked it. It was a lot of fun. It was fun to watch it with my kids who haven't seen a lot of horror movies. You know, they're, they're not really sensitive at least the two kids that were watching they're not really sensitive to it but at the same time they haven't seen a lot of the horror stuff and so you know i always wonder how are they going to react and, and what you know what are they thinking you know, of course my daughter's you know hiding her eyes and she's kind of cringed down with a pillow kind of thing but she's not too scared and wants to leave so that was all kind of fun it was kind of fun that my wife is the one that picked this movie out not me, and that, that she liked it too. But, you know, it had some some tropes that were good. You know, it had the callbacks. It had the, the birds attacking. And, it, you know, anything with, with birds in it is going to make me think of, of Alfred Hitchcock. And they did a good job with those scenes. And they and like I said, I thought Kristen Stewart did a really good job of acting in this. Especially, you know, in the places where she needed to be scared and horrified. and And she did kind of have a resolve and... And that kind of thing. Dylan McDermott, he still has not done nothing to impress me. Just he plays the same character all the time. He's selfish. He's just kind of stupid and doesn't understand things and just always reacts badly. I don't know. You guys are gonna have to help me out and tell me if if Dylan McDermott has ever done anything good. He's that if he's ever acted well. Because I just haven't seen it. He just seems like the just a bland person every time I see him and he's, I don't know, 
I've said enough about that. Penelope Ann Miller, uh, she did fine. Um, you know, again, her character wasn't given a lot. She wasn't a likable character. She wasn't supposed to be. You know, at the end, she did come together with for her daughter. And, of course, when she saw the woman, dead woman, coming out of the wall, she was she understood that her daughter was telling the truth. Um, but anyway, it was fun to watch. It was a good thriller. Had some good elements to it. And it had some classic things. You know, it had the, oh, the flashback. Now I remember. Now I'm going to be a murderer again. And, and, you know, that whole thing with... You know, death brings on grief, which brings on guilt, which maybe you push it out of your mind. But when it comes back, oh, you're going to kill who's ever there kind of thing. And that's fun. You know, even though it's a trope, it's fun. In you know, like I said, the, the little kid is the only person that can perceive the ghosts. That's kind of fun, even though it's a trope. Um, so it takes all these horror elements and puts them together pretty good. And so I kind of liked it. It was kind of a fun movie to watch and, and enjoyed watching with my family. So I would give that a recommendation. if you're Now, of course, I say that after spoiling the entire movie for you. So that's one of the dangers of listening to this these episodes, is I'm going to spoil it. So, sorry. <laughs> well, there you go. That, that does it for today's episode. I'm always interested to find out if, you, if you've seen these movies, if you had similar thoughts to mine, if you haven't seen them, if something I've said has intrigued you. So uh, you can always contact the show by sending an email to journeyintopodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter at journeyinto. And uh, I'm also on Facebook under the Journey Into Podcast. So feel free to contact me through any of those means. And I have been focusing a lot on getting stuff up on my Patreon page. So if you're interested in, in looking at what I have over there, you can go to patreon.com slash journey into. I have early episodes of the Outfield Excursions over there. I just started doing a side trip series at the $2 level. And I'm very proud that I was finally able to put out my first episode of the Comics Cave over on Patreon, where I talk about the man thing and go through a significant issue of that comic. And it was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, so the Comics Cave, I'm going to be doing a lot of things on that as well. But that's available right now to all Patreon members. So yeah, I've been trying to do more there, but I also need to get more here on the regular feed. So there'll be more journeys, there'll be some more delusions of grandeur coming your way. And, you know, who knows, we, we can find out what else is strewn along the path. Bye-bye now. Strewn Along the Path is produced under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. This means you can't change it, you can't sell it, but you can share it as much as you would like. Just tell people where it came from. <laughs>